Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. In a David Letterman, my next guest needs no introduction moment. Today, I welcome the king of the legal thriller, Scott Turow. Scott, of course, is the author of over a dozen books of fiction, including The Last Trial, Presumed Innocent, and The Burden Proof, and two nonfiction books, including 1L, about his experience as a law student. Suspect, or as I suspect it might be called Suspect, is his latest. If you're an avid Turow fan, you'll recognize the lead protagonist as Sandy Stern's granddaughter and a minor player in The Last Trial. Pinky is our first-person narrator, and we'll chat about her and so much more. Before I bring him on, a quick reminder that we're now offering some great perks on Patreon. We started the page to keep in better touch with you and get your feedback, as well as offer some fun tips and tricks. You can see all the benefits by visiting www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. If the show has boosted your writing in any way or you've gotten some useful advice, this is an easy way to reach out. We appreciate it. The other thing I wanted to mention is that Scott Turow comes to us through the Miami Book Fair that is going on later this month. They have some amazing authors, both online and in person. Check them out at the MiamiBookFair.com. Great events up there. We appreciate their support of the show. On with the show. Scott Turow, welcome. Thank you, Marie. Appreciate it. Congratulations on creating yet another compelling character to keep us up late at night. This was such a fun read. Fun read Thank you. Thanks. So before we get to Pinky, it's been a bit of a sub-theme in several of my interviews. And as I've heard you interviewed, a bit of a, a theme in yours of lawyers turned writers or lawyers as writers. I confess I'm one of those too. And I, you know, I wonder if in your experience, if law schools and law firms are just, you know, sort of filled with frustrated writers, you know, if this is sort of coincidence or if there's there's some connection between this obsession with, with law and fiction? Well, I think it's foolhardy to deny that there's a connection. And I'll, my own explanation to myself is that lawyers are basically word people. You know, you think about courtrooms and the sheriff throwing somebody out of an apartment and, uh, you know, jail door slamming shut uh, behind a defendant uh, when you typically think about the operation of the law. And of course, all that's true. But the life lawyers lead is all words. It's what they say in court. It's the questions they ask witnesses. It's what's written down in statutes or contracts, including settlement agreements. So language is the life of the lawyer. Uh, and it's not surprising that people who have to have some kind of verbal facility, whether it's written or spoken or both, that they also see themselves as storytellers. This is particularly true among trial lawyers who all inherently recognize that, you know, the key to victory is telling a jury a good story. Uh, but I don't think you necessarily find the, the lawyers who, who want to write confined simply to the precincts of trial lawyers. And I, I do think it has to do with, you know, that bond with language that's fundamental to practicing law. And for you, it sounds like writing was there 
first and the law came second. So you knew you wanted to be a novelist and and I think studied at Stanford before law school, yes? Yes. And yeah. uh, that's, that's a common misperception about me that I, you know, was yet another lawyer who decided he didn't like being a lawyer and was looking for something else to do. It's quite the contrary. Uh, my childhood ambition was to be a novelist and largely because it was taking such a heavy emotional toll on me. I started looking around for something else I could do that might distract me from myself. And I found that I had this potent interest in the law, uh, which came as a kind of a shock to me, but there, there was, it was really a, uh, a happy discovery of my young adulthood that there was another subject that seemed just so incredibly compelling to me. And, you know, for most writers, more lucrative. I think that's what drives a lot of people is they're like, how do I make a living as a writer? And how can I be, as you say, you know, around words and immersed in language and, you know, and still make money? Well, that I mean, certainly I, I was not indifferent to the idea of how was I going to support myself, but you know, I had been a steerage level faculty member at Stanford at the time I made this decision. And I did have serious job offers as a university teacher. And, you know, there was a tenure track out there that most of my friends in the English department uh, who were PhD candidates would have given their eye teeth to have. So I, as I say, I, I certainly liked the idea of having a reliable living but I wasn't interested in becoming an English professor was, was going to do to me. And I, and unlike being a lawyer, I felt that if I decided to pursue a career as an English professor, that I would be settling for something that wasn't a, a first choice. Whereas the power that the law had over me as an interest made its sort of siren call uh, far more compelling to me. And now that you've been retired, I think you retired in 2020 from the law. I did. And I'm wondering, you know, superficially, you would assume that that would make the writing a lot easier. You have your your kind of whole day spread out in front of you. But, you know, sometimes constraints aren't such a bad thing. And, and having, you know, maybe the noise of another career is almost, it could be helpful. I don't know how you found that since you left. Well, there's no doubt that that I am writing faster. So that's been one consequence of retiring. And, you know, I do have more time to write. I do, however, still have uh, two pro bono cases. You know, so I, I, I do give some time to the law and usually every week. It's far from what it was at the height of my practice. So... Um, there is more time to write, and, uh, and and I think I'm taking advantage of it. I don't know from moment to moment. Once you call yourself retired, there's there are other things that beckon, whether it's the golf course and certainly grandchildren. And I don't get up many mornings feeling like, gee, what am I going to do today? I still feel overwhelmed in the same old way. Well, let's dive into the book. You know, nobody introduces a book better than the, the guy who wrote it. And I don't want to give away any spoilers. So I'll let you take us into, I think it's Suspect. Is it Suspect? Because it used to be a different title. So I, I'm going to let you even introduce it based on the title. Okay. You're quite right, Marie, that the 
working title was As I Suspected, which would imply that the title now ought to be pronounced suspect. But when I settled on this title with my editor, Ben Severe, we both realized that the the first pronunciation was going to end up being suspect. So I, you know, it's sort of like whether it's Tarot or Tarot, I answer to both. The same thing's true with the novel. As for the novel itself, the protagonist, as you mentioned, is the very eccentric granddaughter of Sandy Stern, 33-year-old Clarice Pinky Granham, who has lived self-consciously and, you know, even now that she's an adult, seeing herself as a serious misfit, you know, and she does things to kind of, you know, seemingly warm people off. She's got what appears to be a common nail uh, through her nose to actually an old piece of goth jewelry. And her perception of herself as not like everybody else, to some extent, is borne out by not, not simply because she's socially at, ill at ease, but because very frequently um, she misses signals. She doesn't understand what other people seem to understand about social situations. But the advantage of that, of being sort of a permanent outsider who is not clued into the usual social context is that she can see things from a different perspective. And she's found when, while first working in her grandfather's law office, that it makes her particularly adept as an investigator. So she now, that's what she is now. She works for the son of Sandy's now late second wife, Rick Dudek. And uh, the, novel concerns principally a case that Rick and Pinky are working on representing the local police chief who has been accused of sextortion. That is asking officers on the force for sex in exchange for promotions. That's the accusation. And the kicker in suspect or suspect is that the police chief is female. And you know, we, we are off to the races with, with that beginning. Uh, I should add, Pinky being Pinky seems to have an untoward fascination for her next door neighbor, who is a rather mysterious guy. So that also is a principal concern. And all of these balls get tossed up in the air within the first couple of chapters and then... Uh fall together over time. Well, let's unpack Pinky a little bit because she's so wonderful. And, you know, as I look over the, you know, the arc of all of your novels, we obviously have a lot of recurring characters. And so you have to find a protagonist that people, not necessarily they're going to like, but they're going to be interested in, not just over the course of 400 pages, but maybe over the course of books. So I'm wondering, you know, as you develop Sandy and as you're developing Pinky, Rusty, some of these recurring people, how you know you've got enough stuff in them that you understand them well enough or that there's something interesting about them? Because, you know, a lot of these people I'd rather spend more time with than, you know, the people I actually like and, and are in my life. So I'm just wondering how you know when you've got somebody who's going to have the legs to hold up several novels and, you know, what, what the stuff is in them that, that tells you that. Yeah, I think that's the number one mistake that novelists can make, which is choosing a subject or characters that just can't sustain their interest. With Pinky, 
you know, she was sort of road tested in the sense that a lot of people who talked to me about the last trial, which was the book where she, you know, made her first actual appearance. She was a child in utero in the burden of proof, but I don't think we can count that. You know, and a lot of people loved the granddaughter. She was, you know, she was so quirky. And are you going to write more about her? And I hadn't thought about that myself. And then I, then I was like, yeah, that's, that's kind of a good idea. But I think, Marie, what really animated me and made me sure that I could live with Pinky for a couple of years was the fact that at heart, I understood how poignant and sometimes painful and brave she was about accepting this perception that she really wasn't made the same way as most of the people around her, that she didn't really want all of the same things. She wasn't dreaming of a house in the suburbs, you know, or a life partner forever. And her principal task in life, at least where in the if, where she's at now, is coming to terms with her own differentness and with, you know, the frequent pain that 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 brings her. So that's why I thought I could endure with this character as to whether she will return again. Interestingly, the novel Suspect's been optioned by David Kelly and David's vision is, you know, of a limited series that will recur annually. So Pinky will have a new adventure every year, you know, if David has his way, as he often does in the world of television. (laughs) So, you know, we'll find out. He would not be unhappy at all if I was to write another Pinky novel, since, you know, that would be subsumed in our deal. And, you know, I I know David well enough that uh, if this thing gets off the ground, I expect he'll probably talk to me about you know, Pinky too. So I regarded this as a one-off when I started. And um, whether it whether it is or it isn't, we'll find out with time. Well, it's a challenge because, you know, if you were to pin up a picture of Pinky and Scott Trow on, on a billboard, they wouldn't look so much alike, you know? No. I mean, she's she 30, 33, 34. She's bisexual. She, um, as you say, has this, you know, hardware in her nose. Mm-hmm. You know, her hair is funky colors. She's biographically about as away from you as as could be. And it's first person. And I right. always think first person is, you know, just its own challenge. But so you really had to be inside of her skin. And I don't know how that is for you, you know, how you how you accessed a point of view so different from your own and, and did it so effectively. Well, I, I'm sure you know this from your own experience writing, but you know, what happens when you sit down is not always governed by conscious intention. So, yeah, I thought I would be writing about Pinky. Yeah, uh, I was gripped emotionally by the kind of, you know, material that I was talking about uh, before and the sort of struggle she's engaged in as a as a younger adult. But I had absolutely no vision. And in fact, I would have regarded it as preposterous if somebody had told me you're going to write this book in the first person. And, uh, you know, I was nosing around in the book and making notes. And quite frankly, um, that's the way I get started. And those notes were in the first person. Uh, But I paid no attention to that because I just figured, you know, when I sit down to really write a corner to corner draft, 
it'll be in the third person. And when I began, it was still in the first person. And uh, I was like, God, this is a lot of temerity to think that, you know, a 73-year-old straight guy is going to write about a 33-year-old, you know, bisexual female. So I wrote the first chapter in both the first person and the third person, and I sent them to my editor, Ben Severe. And Ben, of course, was taken aback by the idea of this book being written in the first person uh, when I told him about it. And, but when he got the two drafts, he said, I don't know, but I think you're right. This is just more interesting in her voice. So give it a try. If it, you know, if it falls on its face somewhere along the way, then you know, it's not the worst task in the world to rewrite in the third person, although I would add that it's easier for the editor uh, to say that than the author to do it. <laughs> But that turned out to be the last conversation we had about the first person. And, uh, you know, of course, we had sensitivity reads from people whose biographical experience is more like Pinky's. And, you know, those were helpful, but I didn't get major corrections about the voice. I mean, there was, for example, one point where what strikes me as the something I have no familiar with familiarity with, which is how you decide on a given night, whether you want to sleep with a man or a woman. Mm. And, uh, you know, I got, I thought a whole comment from, you know, somebody who works at, at Grand Central, my publisher. And, uh, you know, I, I probably should have figured this out myself, but, you know, there, there's nothing predetermined. Go out and you talk to people and whoever seems interesting is the person who's interesting. So, I, you know, I obviously I needed that kind of pointer at, you know, some intimate moments. But, you know, by and large, I, you know, as they would say in the lingo, I felt this woman. And, you know, for the most part, you know, she spoke through me. And, uh, you know, I, I was happy with the voice. There were certain self-conscious concessions on my part to Pinky. One of the things that Stern thinks about her in the last trial is he's given up any hope that he'll ever get her to read. She is not a lettered person. And, uh, you know, she'll, she reads on the internet uh, for, you know, professional reasons, but she doesn't do it for recreation or pleasure. Uh, and so her vocabulary is not the same as mine. And, uh, you know, she's more straightforward in the way she expresses herself. And, you know, and good, good for that. Good for her. So I, I didn't try to turn Pinky into me. I, I conceded to her what, you know, what, what I knew to be true to her. But I lost my fear of what I was doing as the book progressed. Yeah. I mean, one of the challenges seems I have a 21-year-old and they just seem like they speak a different language now. Yeah. I mean, their lingo is different. Their references are totally different. And I was like, God, that'd be a massive amount of research to just understand their dialect. And one of the interesting things that happened with the editors and the readers is I was told repeatedly there was too much of that. And the other observation I ultimately was struck by was that this isn't really a national language. Uh, it's the way that people of a certain age in a certain area will speak to each other. And the, the dialect or the 
diction that you hear from your 21-year-old may not be understood by, you know, somebody halfway across the country of the same age. Hmm. And uh, so, you know, my attempt to master some of that was regarded as unconvincing or artificial. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I ultimately settled on the, you know, the belief that a little bit would go a long way. Well, I was so happy to see you do this because it's been, you know, in the last five, seven years, it's been a recurring sort of discussion on the show about who gets to write about whom, whose lane you have to stay in. And it's, it's sort of been a frustrating conversation to me because I thought we're really narrowing the scope of what we're allowed to write about if we're only allowed to write about our own perspectives and fiction. And so to see this, and I, and I feel like that conversation is kind of coming around to people feeling like if you do it well, if you do it convincingly, and if, if it's credible, it's fine. And that's how this felt. And I'm, you know, I, I was just so glad to see it. I don't, I don't want the the doors to close on what we're allowed to write about. I, you know, I, I think that that's, it, it's one thing for an author or an artist of any kind to say, I accept the fact that my imagination to some extent is going to be bounded by my own experience. And, you know, and that's, that's a truth, but the idea that fiction, which seeks to translate us into the um, really into the, the shoes, the skin of other human beings that uh, a novelist should say to start, Oh, I'm not going to make that effort because uh, you know, there's some kind of political boundary I don't want to cross. I, I just have never accepted that. That's, that strikes me as censorship, self-censorship of the worst kind. And, and, and um, the, the only thing that's, that's even graver than that is when those restrictions seem to be externally imposed. So, yes, was I afraid that I was going to get, you know, clobbered, especially from a political perspective of saying that, you know, the experience of a bisexual female was not mine to appropriate. Yeah, I was afraid of that. Um, And, you know, generally speaking, looking at the response of of reviewers and readers, there's there's been very little of that, and, and frankly, far less than I expected. Yeah. Well, and the world of the novel is populated by a lot of, there's a, you know, a handful of people of color, and, you know, a lot of, and it, it sort of reflects, and I, I think it's important to reflect the actual world that we all live in, which is populated by a lot of different people. <laughs> so, yeah, especially um, if we live in cities, right. Right. And I don't know if maybe there was another character in here who's, uh, I mean, you didn't write from their point of view, but, you know, there's a lot of characters who get a lot of page time who also don't look like you. And I don't know if any of them gave you more difficulty, if you had to do more research, if they were a little more inaccessible to you than even Pinky may have been. Well, there's a character who's a Hmong background, and I know a little bit about the Hmong people because there's a small Hmong community in Chicago, and of course, a much, much larger one in Minneapolis. But, you know, the the experience of somebody who's a first-generation American that, that's something I'm far more familiar with. And my assumption about that character was that he was going to have allegiances to this background that is by, you know, some kind of demographic standard more unusual. 
but that, you know, he was going to see himself fundamentally as an American, the same way that most people raised in this country see themselves as, you know, Americans at heart. But yeah, there was, that was a lot of research just to understand the basics about, you know, a very, very different culture. And there are things about the Hmong that are unlike any other ethnic group, including the fact that people who speak different languages, you know, different Hmong dialects live together, you know, in the same communities, which is kind of a head scratcher. But for them, the overall belief system is apparently enough to unite them. Is that where the bulk of the research had to happen? Because it strikes me also that, you know, writing over the the decades that you've written over, the technology has changed so much, not only DNA technology, but just, you know, I don't want to give anything away about the book, but let's just say technology in general has, has made right. some advances. Well, well um, you know, yeah, we can certainly say that Pinky is a private investigator and that the technology of surveillance yeah. uh, has evolved a great, great deal. And, uh, and yeah, I had to learn a lot about that. And in that regard, I have to say, it is absolutely shocking what is on the internet. And, uh, you know, it, it, at the simplest level, if you want to know how to pick your neighbor's lock, go, go on the internet. There are 20 YouTube videos that will show you how <laughs> to do that. Uh, and even when we're talking about, you know, much more sophisticated and lesser known surveillance techniques, for example, the use of something called laser taps that turn windows into, you know, an equivalent instrument to a microphone, you know, by measuring the vibrations of the words being spoken inside that window uh, and, and turning it into, um, you know, with the aid of computer technology and into into recognizable speech, you know, it, it, it's all out there. You can read all about it. You know, the devices are real, the anti-devices that, you know, people who are afraid of that surveillance use to thwart it, but that's also on the internet. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it is amazing. And, and of course, frightening, because uh, if I tell you that, you know, somebody who, you know, chooses to do it, can aim a laser at, you know, the, the windows of, uh, of your home or mine and find out what you're saying inside. That's kind of mind blowing. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, I, when practiced by the government, I would point out that it's illegal without, um, you know, judicial approval and supervision, but that, that doesn't make other bad guys in the society, you know, it can give you no comfort about them. Yeah, I mean, it just struck me as reading this that you have to be not only do you have to be a legal expert, which you are, but you also have to be a technology expert and a DNA expert and a medical examiner expert and a private eye. You know, you have all of that. Plus, you have to be a good storyteller. And well, I thought, I to, I, <laughs> let, let me interrupt and say one thing on this score. I, I once did a panel in Chicago with the late Robert Parker whom I hadn't met before and who I liked a great deal and had a wonderful time being with him. In the middle of that panel, somebody, somebody said to, they were complimenting the research on some subject in one of the Spencer novels. And Parker laughed and he said, oh, he said, I'm just a good typist. Um, and I, I instantly 
had my own interpretation of what he was saying, which was, I'm in the business of creating an illusion. And if, if my knowledge of a subject is one millimeter deep, but that's all that's required in order to create this convincing illusion that I know what I'm talking about, uh, you know, then so be it, you know, credit to me as a very good typist. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's what you need to know, which is enough to create a convincing imagined world. So I, I don't think anybody's going to come to me for advice about surveillance techniques because I don't know much more than I was able to put on the page in suspect. It's funny you use the word illusion because I was thinking also, you know, a, a lot of this feels like close-up magic. You know, it feels like the art of either the art of distraction or a diversion. And as you're saying this, you know, that you know you're creating sort of an illusion. Yeah, that that rings true. But that but to the to the art of distraction point, I mean, you're you're so good at making us look at the little birdie over here while the duck disappears. You know, and I right. um, I think that's also a magic trick that you've got to you've got to be good at as a novelist. I, I I agree completely. But most of it, I think, is rooted. I hope in the genuineness of the emotional struggles of the principal character or characters. Yeah. Uh, and if that's where the novel is focused, then yeah, the sidelights have to be convincing too. But I think the reason the reader accepts them and is so easily distracted is because where they're most focused is in their concerns for the character. We'll be right back with more from Scott Turow and Suspect or Suspect in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page if you're enjoying the show and you've learned any tips or tricks that may have inched you closer to publication. Check us out at www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. And uh, also a reminder to check out the Miami Book Fair. You can go on their website, miamibookfair.com, and see the amazing list of authors they have there. Scott Turow came to us through the Miami Book Fair, and uh, we appreciate their support of the show. And definitely check them out if you are in the Miami area. Of course, I hope that is on your calendar to go. I think they also have some, some events up online, so check them out there. Let's get back to it with Scott Turow talking about Suspect. So when you start now, you, you've said that you, you don't do an outline, but so much of this feels like it had to have been sort of backward planned. And of course. Set up. Yeah. So I've heard you drive around a lot. Driving is really good. And, <laughs> and uh, so note to self, start driving and you're yeah. take, taking a, a ton of notes. And I, I'm just trying to get a sense of what your office looks like, what your what your car looks like, what this notebook looks like before you know, okay, I've got, you know, I've got the footing enough to start writing these characters. Well, it's, it's obviously a process of aggression. And, uh, you know, these things accumulate, God knows how many great thoughts I've lost in the car, you know, it being able to dictate a quick note as I'm driving has been a tremendous boon. And it was particularly in the, that, the case with suspect that, you know, Adrian and I go back and forth when we're in the Midwest between Southern Wisconsin and Evanston, Illinois. And that's a, you know, that's an hour's drive. And 
that's good time to be talking to myself and uh, you know and, and dictating notes. So, but you know, I, I have long accepted Marie that if I literally can't remember when I get back to whatever device I'm supposed to trap these thoughts on, then eh, maybe it's not that important. But frankly, more, most often it'll come back to me. But so, you know, this morning I'm making breakfast, which was, you know, yogurt and, you know, some nuts and blueberries and raisins. And I'm writing, you know, narration in my head while I'm doing that. So I don't know if that counts as writing time or not. I do know that word for word, what I was thinking about as I was stirring the yogurt eventually, you know, got recorded in, you know, uh, on my computer. So I, I don't turn it off when I leave the computer. And, you know, that sometimes makes me a poor life partner or father, because um, I'm still lodged in my imaginary world, whether I've got, you know, a, a pen or a computer keyboard in front of me. But it's always worked for me. You know, right now, I'm in this, this stage of what I'm working on that where it's really beginning to come together and it becomes hugely involving but that that takes a lot of kind of nosing around and pushing the ball up the hill for a long time well you're talking to a former lawyer so i think all those hours are billable <laughs> <laughs> yeah. as you're stirring your yogurt and thinking about your book bill right. bill that you should bill that <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I did. I generally, I was a little more conservative than that, but I definitely, if, you know, if Adrian asked me, you know, how much time did you spend writing today, which she rarely does, I'd count all of it walking three around. Three and a half hours. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> well, and Kindle County, we have to talk a little bit about setting because I had a couple of our listeners ask about creating compelling settings. And I know that's been mm -hmm. your fictional setting for, mm -hmm. for a lot of these books. And I, I assume you kind of have this place pretty mapped out. You know, your writing is so visual that, you know, we can really see where we are and we can see these interiors and streets. I don't know if you have a map of Kindle County sort of pinned up on your office wall where you, you know where things are. But if there's anything you can say about that place, choosing it and, you know, why you love to mentally stay there, I'd love to hear that. Right. Well, first of all, I mean, this, the, the question invites the complex discussion about how important place is in fiction. And, you know, not everybody does it the same way. Not every neighborhood for the characters as well sketched as Kindle County seems to be for me. But, you know, I, I, for years in my very fortunate dealings with Hollywood, have struggled to maintain control of the character rights. And one of my agents said to me as we were, you know, working our way through yet another of these negotiations, and I, as I say, happily for me, said, you know, if somebody was really smart, what, what they want is Kindle County, not any particular character. And uh, he's right, because that's, that's my recurring character. That's, that's the character who's always there in whole or in part. In, in every book, this place that my imagination is rooted in. And, uh, you know, I used to say when I was living in California many years ago that I still, my dreams still seem to be cited in Chicago. And, you know, Kindle County is Chicago made small. 
it's, a, it's not quite the same size. It's a city about the size of Boston, but it's been home to my imagination. And even in a book like, uh, like Suspect or Suspect, Highland Isle, which is the town in question, has been kind of deliberately excluded over the years from Kendall County because, you know, the mafia dons who originally controlled the town um, wanted to limit the outside authorities. So they, they never allowed that piece of land to be annexed to Kendall County, but it's literally right across the river. And, you know, the vibe of Kendall County, of course, is is always there. And, uh, you know, I'm actually now, the, the novel I'm working on now is set 150 miles north of Kendall County. But, you know, the call of Kendall County is still strong. And do you, do you feel like, I always feel like the setting, I mean, it feels very bucolic and safe you know unlike a movie like seven where the the setting was so oppressive and and, Mm -hmm. kind of in your face this is the opposite of that and I feel like it almost creates a little bit more tension because it's it's at odds with what the action around it is and I don't know if you can say anything about how sort of calm you keep your setting in contrast to the action Mm -hmm. of the story well first of all it's a great observation the setting, which is to say Kendall County in general, is always known, well known to the characters. So no matter how anxious they've been about the way other people will behave, they know where they are. They don't get lost. They remember which street goes one way in which direction. You know, and I haven't thought about that um, self-consciously in the way that you just put it, but you're right. You know, my characters are always at home where they are. And so the, the setting is not part of the challenge they face. Let's talk a little bit about villains because mm-hmm. there's a great villain in the book. I don't know how much we want to say about him, but he, you know, he's bad. He stays bad. He is bad. And yet he's so compelling. I mean, you know, every mm-hmm. time he walks onto the stage, mm-hmm. you just mm-hmm. want to know more. And I don't know if you can say anything about. Well, uh, yeah, it doesn't take all that long before it's clear that um, Lucy, the police chief, has an arch nemesis who's a cop who's firing. She essentially arranged when she took over the police department. And this ex-cop, Moritz Wojciech, went on to great success in the world of real estate. And, you know, she sees it, he he ought to be grateful to her. But he still begrudges her the fact that, you know, he was months short of getting his police pension when she booted him out and forced him out of the department. And so he's her sworn enemy. Usually my bad guys are are not completely black-hearted. You know, they they have their reasons for being who they are. And even though you regard their conduct as disagreeable, you can sort of understand it. Wojciech, as Lucy explains him throughout the course of the novel, uh, is really one of those people who's bad to the bone, who is pretty much conscienceless and lives for this sort of Nietzschean pleasure of proving that he again and again can be the dominant figure in any setting. And he is incredibly intellectually gifted. 
And that really is where his ego rests on the idea that he can outsmart everybody always. And it gives him invariable pleasure whenever he does that. But it was, you know, it was kind of new terrain to me to be writing about somebody who really doesn't have much of a good side. He's got an enduring relationship with the woman to whom he was once married. Uh, so I guess that's that's a plus. And by the end of the novel, you realize that he's loyal to her family and they're loyal to him. But that's about that that's about the end of the good things you can say about Ritz, as you know, as Wojcik is called. He's so I think intelligence can take a character so far. If a character's I'm thinking of sort of Hannibal Lecter, you know, mm-hmm. if a character's really smart. I don't know. I forgive him. I didn't really forgive Ritz or Hannibal Lecter, some of their faults, but I, but you want to be with them. You want to see what they'll do next mm-hmm. and say mm-hmm. next because they're, yeah, I think, I think that is a great characteristic to give, to give to a character. And then you have to, you know, always be smarter than they are to, to kind of keep up with them. But again, maybe that goes back to your point of maybe you don't, you just have to create the illusion and be smart enough that mm-hmm. maybe it isn't as important to be as smart as your, as your characters. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, I, I have to admit in Ritz's case that he's based on a defendant I encountered years ago. And I didn't realize the degree to which this guy had stuck in my mind until I started writing. But, you know, I was just fascinated with the way this particular man did. did he didn't seem to really care much about right or wrong, but he was able to float beyond apprehension. And, uh, he, you know, he was a former police officer when I charged him as a poli- in a police disciplinary proceeding. You know, he just, he, he resigned rather, rather than go to trial. He was smart enough to see when he was cornered, but he went on. He was completely prepared for another career. And, uh, you know, he went ahead into that and uh, really without a, a backward glance. Uh, and I was just fascinated that that somebody could sort of, you know, ride the wave of their own intelligence and have that kind of self-confidence that that was never going to desert him. And ergo, he was always going to be in charge. And as I said, I thought nothing about this man for, for decades. But when I started to write Suspect, then, you know, he, he came flooding back. It also helps to not have a conscience, right? I feel like not having a conscience is sort of a superpower. Yeah, uh, well, it it definitely is. And uh, I'm sure in their own way of thinking about things, I, you know, I've met Chicagoans who you would think of as conscienceless. And when I've sat down with them and tried, of course, to, to understand them, you know, what comes out is everybody's corrupt. I'm not any more corrupt than anybody else. Everybody in this milieu uh, is corrupt and does wrong. And it's not that I don't know right from wrong. It's just not truly a guiding principle in the world that I inhabit. And, you know, that and that's kind of the way they elude, you know, the call of conscience. Mm. I suppose we can only look to our own politics to see that's true. (laughs) Well, Well, speaking of, yeah, go ahead. uh, Just, you know, whether that's true or not, I've just... They, it's not like, as I said, it's they, they just have a way of explaining this to themselves that seems entirely coherent. But go ahead. You were about yeah. to ask. 
Well, no, I was just going to say to that point, you know, we should mention that the novel is set post pandemic and the pandemic is, you know, certainly in the background of this. I was also curious just how you allow the outside world to sort of be present and not present at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like there's no mention of politics, which is very wise, but there is mention of, you know, obviously of COVID. So how do you, how do you kind of navigate that terrain of, of real world, but suspended fantasy world? Yeah, um, I think that's more and more a challenge in today's America. And, you know, it certainly doesn't reflect the realities inside the walls of my own home, where, you know, my wife and I are basically political junkies. And yet, I, you know, I've always believed in the, the maxim of uh, one of the Hollywood moguls, whether it was Goldwyn or um, Daryl Zanuck, I don't know who actually said it, but supposedly looked at one of his writers and said, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. And, you know, our current political predicament is one where I'm not going to convince anybody who differs with me uh, to change their mind. And the people who agree with me already agree with me. So it's no point preaching to that choir. And, and it's so toxic and so charged today that, you know, e- even, even a little bit, I mean, Sandy Stern thinks something in the last trial about the insane uh, egocentricity of Donald Trump. And, it, you know, it, it, it goes by in a blip. And yet I got mail from people who were infuriated that, you know, I, I had something, you know, so insulting to say about the president. And as you point out, there's no political grandstanding about in terms of national issues in suspect. And but I've still gotten mail from people who say, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're so woke, it makes me sick. And, uh, you know, I couldn't read this book. Gee whiz. You know, and I, it's like if you're so locked into that world that you can't leave it, even for uh, you know, the relief of reading, then that the problem is not with me. Well, and, you know, at your earlier point, the ground that we can talk about is getting narrower and narrower. I mean, just the the existence of the police, right, is, is yeah. a, a political topic or, you know, yeah. somebody's wearing a mask, it's a political topic. So yeah, the the ground is getting narrower on which it's it's safe to tread. And that's dangerous. And, for I, and, novelists I, too. I, and I have to say that, you know, these the pu- public safety whether it involves the police or mask wearing, seem to me so obvious that I can't believe they're political subjects. And, you know, and I like, you know, friends of mine who are very conservative politically, and we're, we're sitting around and they're shaking their heads about how in the world did wearing a mask ever become a political issue? And, you know, on the other side, you know, maybe I'm a prosecutor at heart, but I can't imagine a world without police. I wouldn't want to live in it. So there are bad people out there. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry to be the first to tell you that. Well, we're drawing down on our time, but I know having studied and taught at Stanford and your many, many decades of writing, I don't know if there's advice that sustains you beyond driving. I like the driving one. I mean, I I do think those... (laughs) Go for a ride. Yeah, yeah, go for a ride. I do think those acts of, you know, shaving, showering, driving when your brain is like slightly occupied, but not really Mm -hmm. occupied are great Mm -hmm. generative idea times. But I agree completely. Yeah. Um, You know, my one advice to people is don't be deluded 
by those generative moments as you so you know perfectly describe them at the end of the day you still got to put your butt in the chair and write and you know that is indeed where the rubber meets the road uh, and you've got to get it on the page and uh, you know and don't if, if you write you are a writer and if you don't with whatever excuse uh, including, you know, I was in a bar last night and had a great discussion about literature uh, or, you know, I hang around with writers and they say things that I find very provocative, whatever you, you got to write. Uh, and so that's my one enduring piece of advice is that writers write and, you know, and people who only want to be writers don't. So I heard Presumed Innocent is coming to Apple TV. Did I hear that yes. right? Yeah, correct. Completely correct. Um, it's going to be uh, an eight-part uh, limited series. Um, the combined effort of J.J. Abrams and uh, you know a young writer-producer, Dustin Thomas Thomason, and uh, David E. Kelly, and uh, it's going to start filming in L.A in January. As I like to say, you know that you're getting old when you're alive to see the remake. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I have tremendous faith in David as a writer. And, uh, you know, I, I, the pilot script, which I saw um, months ago, maybe eight months ago, you know, I, I told him with utter sincerity that it shocked and delighted even me. And I'm the person who made up these people in the first place. So I, I you know, I think it'll rock. And, uh, you know, David's well on the way to writing all eight, eight scripts. And, uh, you know, fingers crossed. You never, you never know exactly what's going to happen. And uh, I remember having a conversation with Gary Sinise, a, you know, wonderful actor and fellow Chicagoan and, he was making a film at the time and he, he said to me, you know, I, th I think it's really good. He said, he said, but you never know. You walk into that theater after it's all been put together. And, you know, the, I think the acting is wonderful. I think the director's in tune, but you know, sometimes it just doesn't happen. And uh, so that's the nature of that process. And I, I, my hopes are high, but we'll see. Well, the potential is, yeah, the potential is high. Yeah, I can't wait for that. Are there other announcements like that we should know? Certain things coming down the pike that we should know about? Well, as I said, you know, Suspect is uh, is also on David's plate. And, uh, you know, he's, he's starting to work on that too. The man's capacities are just remarkable. Yeah. Uh, you know, he writes with such grace and facility. And no matter how much he takes on, he seems to continue to do it, which is quite remarkable. But yeah, that's next. And, you know, there are other books that have been around that people are talking about. And now Most that you're retired, we can, we can wait for, you know, a book every six months. <laughs> <laughs> Not this guy. <laughs> I just can't do it. It's just, oh. I can't do it. It's just not worth reading if I... Yeah. If I don't have all of this cogitation or generative time, as you call it. Yeah, so. no, you you take your time. It's worth the wait every single time. It's great. It's great. Yeah, and um, you're going to be at the Miami Book Fair. We should we should mention that yeah. too. And that is, what date are you there? 
What date are you talking uh, about? It's either the 19th or the 20th of November. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I always enjoy it. I get to see my buddy, Dave Barry and uh, in Miami and uh, his wonderful wife, Michelle Kaufman. Um, so I look forward to going to Miami if for no other reason than that. I there are many that. others and it's always a great book fair. It's, you know, just, it's spectacular. They throw us so many authors every year. So I really appreciate their, uh, yeah, they're wonderful. They're wonderful. Yeah. I think one of the bigger book fairs, I mean, we have the LA Times book fair out here, but I think, I think Miami is even bigger than the LA Times book fair. So yeah, great stuff going on there. I mean, I have no idea how you count, but the number of people who show up is, you know, over the course of the, the fair is, is stupendous. It's insane. Uh, yeah. and, <laughs> yes. And it's just wonderful to see that many people walking around drawn by and interested in books. That's why they're there. That fundamentally is why they're all there. And, uh, you know, it's a great mix of authors and really neat people. And anyway, both of those book fairs, the, uh, the LA Times Fair, which I've been to several times and the, and the Miami Book Fair, which is now more times than I can count. They're, they are great events. Well, congratulations. Congratulations. Thank and thanks so much for doing this. This was uh, Scott Chiro. This was great. No, it was a, a lovely, informed conversation. So thank you for all the time you put into this. That was Scott Turow. The book is Suspect. It's out and available now and published by Hachette. In addition to our Patreon page, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobarrett.com or pinonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast. And uh, as always, our fantastic music and sound design is provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.